Welcome to the Deep and Durable Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gray, a veteran of nearly 45 years in higher education. My goal has always been to transmit my love of learning to as many people as possible, and this podcast is one vehicle to do that. In my teaching career, I taught biology to over 10,000 students. Many of them remarked that I taught them how to think. This podcast aims to do the same for my listeners. Join me for Season 5, which will develop your ability to ask the kinds of questions that lead to deep and durable learning. In three podcast episodes earlier this season, I took apart the thinking process into nine components, which are organized into three layers. Thinking begins in the layer I call the core, proceeds to the working layer where we do most of our chewing on questions, and leads to the output layer where our conclusions and anticipated actions come out. The entire thinking process is propelled by questions. Indeed, questions are the engines of thought. Starting today, and continuing in the two concluding podcasts of this season, we'll revisit these layers and learn how to ask the kind of compelling and clarifying questions that will make our thinking what it ought to be. I want to be very concrete today. Let me start with an article from today's New York Times written by opinion columnist Pamela Paul. It is provocatively titled, How to Get Kids to Hate English. Obviously, no parent, certainly no teacher, would set out with this goal in mind, but Paul argues we've managed to make most kids hate English. One of my sons has an undergraduate degree in English, as well as master's and doctoral degrees in English. As a counter-argument to the article, one of my grandsons, who will enter college in the fall, has declared that he will be majoring in English. My grandson has been homeschooled all his life. Pamela Paul points to the way English is taught in middle and high schools as a major reason that kids hate English, especially reading literature. As she puts it, quote, It's as if once schools teach kids how to read, they devote the remainder of their education to making them dread doing so. End of quote. Paul says the literature kids are forced to read is insipid and undermines the very possibility of creating a love of the power of narrative to transport, inspire, and transform. I'll link to the article in the accompanying blog post at deepandurable.com. The core of thinking is where we generate questions that we care enough about that we're willing to wrestle with them at length in the working layer. We generate questions to solve problems, whether problems of ignorance, conflicts between systems of thought, or practical problems of all stripes. We generate these questions from a point of view and with a motive that is, what we are trying to accomplish through our thinking. 
Because formal schooling privileges answers, most people are used to accepting propositions without questioning them. This is a serious mistake. It makes about as much sense as fueling a vehicle that has no engine under the hood. Propositions can be valuable, but only to the extent that they provide fuel for reasoned argument. Questions are the engines of argumentation. The best questions are self-generated, but all questions must be articulated or thinking has no engine. Learning is not accumulating propositions. It is achieving understanding through grappling with questions. When questions do come up in written argumentation, most of us treat them as rhetorical and not as a summons to provide an answer. When teachers ask questions in live instruction, the students don't answer. One, because the question is surely rhetorical, and two, because the average teacher answers their own question within two seconds. This comes up also when Christians engage in so-called serious Bible study. Rather than wrestling with a passage and generating their own questions, the average believer reads the passage as propositional truth, and then reads the commentaries to see what theological thinkers have written about it. More propositions. Even those who personally generate a few questions from a passage look to commentaries to resolve the questions rather than wrestling with the questions personally. This short-circuits learning. Commentaries should only be consulted after individuals have extensively grappled with the biblical writer's argument. Let's go back to how to get kids to hate English. The author confesses to a love for great classic literature that's no longer typical of students. This is a point of view, a perspective. You could certainly say this perspective carries with it a bias, as all perspectives do. The bias here assumes what was fulfilling and transforming for her is generally true. The great books or classical approach to the Western canon of literature has had many advocates over several centuries. One major question emanating from this perspective is, how can we utilize great literature to maximize the creative problem-solving ability of students? What other perspectives on this issue are there? There's the economic point of view, which emphasizes employability as the main rationale for education. So the question here is, does the English curriculum make it more likely that the student will be able to get a good job? This vocational pragmatism is a major driver of education all the way from kindergarten through college. The common core approach to education puts a premium on standardizing curriculum and getting as many students as possible to pass the related standardized tests around which the system revolves. Common core advocates might ask, how can we produce a literature curriculum that we can get consensus about and that faculty can teach so as to consistently reach student performance benchmarks? A fourth perspective 
emphasizes present-day relevance, arguing that reading dead white males is irrelevant. What is relevant from this point of view is literature that reflects current cultural norms, and reading works that don't argue in ways that may cause angst and offense. For these folks, the question might be, how can literature choices assure students absorb current cultural norms and reject old, distorted ways of thinking? From this quick survey of perspectives on the issue of how to teach English literature, we can see that there are multiple perspectives representing multiple stakeholders, and I haven't mentioned parents or the students themselves. Wrapped up with each point of view is a motivation that shows up in the question each one generates. By motivation, I mean what each is trying to accomplish with their thinking about the issue. You can back up and listen to each question again and detect at least some of the motivation underlying each one. The issue is best addressed, however, by looking at it through all of these lenses, albeit one at a time. I don't believe that all perspectives are equally valid, but it is important that our handling of the issue be multidimensional and not simplistic or overly influenced by personal experience. I think it's important here to circle back around to beginner's mind, the wide-eyed wonder and boundless curiosity you had in your early childhood. Cultivate that humble state of mind that wasn't afraid to appear naive. Cultivate the spontaneous inquiry that led regularly to the joy of discovering satisfying answers. Beginners can ask some really good questions. You don't have to be an expert to be qualified to ask. Expertise is often accompanied by the curse of not even thinking to ask certain kinds of questions. I was present at a scientific meeting several decades ago when Richard Blakemore described his discovery of magnetosomes, structures which allow certain bacteria to orient themselves with the Earth's magnetic field. It would never have occurred to an expert that bacteria would need to know where North is in the Northern Hemisphere. But Blakemore was in his first semester of graduate school and had only one microbiology course as an undergraduate. His relative naivete allowed him to frame a question that would only occur to a beginner's mind, and that is, why are these bacteria I'm observing under the microscope seemingly aligning themselves to magnetic north? While we're considering the question-generating core of thinking, we should recognize that not all questions are good questions. Investing in the wrong question can lead us on a wild goose chase and waste precious time and cognitive energy. It is important to question your question. Is there a question that is more basic, that is, foundational, to the one I'm asking? Is the question clear? Is the question logically connected to my point of view, or is it really derived from a different perspective? Is the question really looking for an answer, or is it loaded with presuppositions that reflect my certainty that my perspective is correct? Why ask a question? if you already know the answer. 
The four questions I proposed a few minutes ago for four points of view on teaching English literature could be improved if they were reformulated. They are slanted questions that prematurely rule out exploring alternatives. The real question is bigger. The big question underneath all these specific questions is something like, why has interest in and facility with English markedly declined over the past 10 to 15 years? Starting a question with why is always a smart move. Ask any four-year-old. Let's try to formulate the question about carbon dioxide I promised two weeks ago. This question will drive the final episodes of this season. I'm approaching this question from an ecological perspective as one trained in microbial ecology. Don't worry, you'll hardly notice. My motivation is to try to cut through the propaganda surrounding this issue. Propaganda which insists that anyone who asks questions is probably a skeptic, if not a denier. Asking questions without a pre-commitment to a particular conclusion is in fact inquiry in pursuit of deep understanding, not rabble-rousing. Questions don't come out of thin air, so a bit of background first to set some context. The EPA webpage that deals with greenhouse gases makes this summary statement, quote, Carbon dioxide is the primary greenhouse gas emitted through human activities. In 2020, Carbon dioxide accounted for about 79% of all U.S. greenhouse gas emissions from human activities. Carbon dioxide is naturally present in the atmosphere as part of the Earth's carbon cycle. End of quote. A few clarification questions will help us craft the right compelling question to sustain us when we get in the working and output layers. First, let's ask this question. What makes something a greenhouse gas? The EPA says, quote, gases that trap heat in the atmosphere are called greenhouse gases, end of quote. Air is 78% nitrogen, followed by 21% oxygen. That's 99% with just two gases, neither of which is a greenhouse gas. The remaining 1% is a mixture of other gases, including neon and hydrogen. Carbon dioxide amounts to about 0.04%. Emission technically means, quote, to give off, end quote, but connotatively, it often impugns the thing emitted as a pollutant. Carbon dioxide, on the other hand, is naturally present in the atmosphere as part of the Earth's carbon cycle. Indeed, humans and all other living organisms, quote, emit, unquote, carbon dioxide constantly. Carbon dioxide is emitted every time we exhale. Carbon dioxide is produced through cellular respiration as we break down food molecules to make their energy available to our cells. Virtually all life forms do the same, including plants. There's widespread confusion about photosynthesis. Plants and other photosynthetic organisms, most of which are bacteria, 
perform both photosynthesis and cellular respiration. Plants use carbon dioxide and the energy of sunlight to synthesize all their organic molecules, including food molecules. Those food molecules are then broken down using cellular respiration to produce, you guessed it, carbon dioxide. This is a far cry from the popular mythology that animals produce carbon dioxide and plants use that carbon dioxide. Plants can take in carbon dioxide, but they also produce it. As a natural cycle, the carbon cycle cycles. It goes around and around as it was designed to do. Here's an excerpt from a video produced by NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Quote, what is the carbon cycle? Carbon is the chemical backbone of all life on Earth. All of the carbon we currently have on Earth is the same amount we've always had. When new life is formed, carbon forms key molecules like protein and DNA. It's also found in our atmosphere in the form of carbon dioxide. The carbon cycle is nature's way of reusing carbon atoms, which travel from the atmosphere into organisms in the earth and then back into the atmosphere over and over again. End of quotation. The carbon cycle is an example of a biogeochemical cycle. Practically speaking, this means that biologists, geologists, and chemists all have interlocking perspectives, which are all necessary to adequately explain how the cycle functions. There's much more that could be said in developing a conceptual framework, but I hope this simplified version will suffice as the basis for formulating our focus question. In the episode in two weeks on the working layer, I'll develop additional concepts. Since humans constantly exhale carbon dioxide produced from metabolizing our food, it follows that we are emitters of this greenhouse gas. Emission is inevitable. At about 2.3 pounds of carbon dioxide per person per day, the current population on Earth releases about 3 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. This compares with 34 billion tons per year from burning fossil fuels. Despite these facts, most climate scientists do not consider humans intrinsic polluters. How can this be? Well, here's our focus question. Why is it pollution when we burn fossilized organisms and release carbon dioxide, and yet living organisms which constantly release carbon dioxide are not a problem? I hope you see the conundrum I submit this as the focus question that will move us into the working layer in two weeks as we seek an answer. In the next episode, we'll acknowledge assumptions we bring to the thinking process and whether they're reasonable. I'll surface relevant facts 
inconvenient and otherwise, which our thinking must accommodate or discredit. Finally, I'll develop some concepts to enrich the network of ideas we will use in search of an answer. In the process of answering this focus question, we'll need to ask a bunch of other questions. That's always true, because questions are the engines of thought. See you in two weeks.